you wouldn't jump in your car and, and drive five, six hundred miles with a known fault on the brakes or a leak on the, the brake fluid or you know something which is putting you, your family and the dog at risk. But major oil companies are prepared to tolerate this workaround, this acceptance of risk based on their interpretation of operational risk assessment. It's pretty clear as soon as I meet Jake Malloy that he doesn't beat around the bush. That's especially true when he's talking about what oil and gas companies are doing these days to make sure their installations are risk-free and safe to work on. But then again, you wouldn't really expect him to sugarcoat it, given he's a diet-in-the-wool union man. This is where it all falls down, this balance under our regulatory structure, which is you reduce risk to as low as reasonably practicable. To me, it's, it's an excuse for not doing the job. And what they say is it's mitigation to prevent an incident occurring as a consequence of something failing. This is Baseline by Safety Culture. I'm Claire Stewart. Oh, I remember it all as, as clear as day. I had some of the best, some of the best and worst times of my life offshore. These days, Jake's a regional organiser for the offshore energy branch of the Rail Maritime and Transport Workers Union. But before he moved into the union's full time, he did 17 years on the rigs. In Aberdeen, knew the, the only thing that was missing half the time was a tumbleweed. You know, lots of Americans wandering about. A lot of the bars down by the, the harbour, down by the quayside. Yeah, it was, it was a mad old, mad old time. But good, good fun as well. It was a lot of, as I say, camaraderie and everybody knew everybody. Because a lot of guys moved around a lot of different jobs and you'd always bump into somebody that you knew that had been on a, another job. So He makes no bones about the fact the relationship between unions and operators has long been fraught and more than occasionally combative. But he's definitely not the only one who's worried about the growing trend for what the industry calls operational risk assessments and lax safety processes. The UK safety regulator also has big concerns. When you dig down into the health and safety executives review, you come to a section about topic performance, where the HSE inspectors rate the operators in terms of maintenance strategy and risk assessment and other elements. The number that are moving from broadly compliant, which isn't a great measurement in any case, and if that's what they're striving for, then God help us all, but there's a number moving from broadly compliant into the poor and very poor category. You're also seeing an increase in what HSE term is non-compliance, something like a 60, 65% increase. But the worrying one for us is that workforce reports, workforce concerns to the health and safety executive have gone down by over 70%. Jake says it's evidence that workers are now more worried than they used to be about reporting near misses and niggling concerns because they don't want a reputation for being a troublemaker or difficult and they don't want to be fired. 2018 marked 30 years since the world's worst offshore disaster which killed 167 of the 228 men that were working on the Piper Alpha oil and gas rig in the North Sea. Lord Cullen led the government inquiry into the disaster, six months of investigations and hearings. In the end, he handed down 106 recommendations which changed the industry overnight. Stringent safety standards and better operational procedures and processes became law. 
because Piper was a disaster of cataclysmic proportions, governments and companies around the world took notice. And I think there have been a change in attitudes towards safety, certainly in the offshore sphere, because people are much more conscious from top to bottom of companies that they've all got a responsibility and they've got something to preserve in the way of safety. The question is, 30 years on, have the lessons of Piper been forgotten? And if they have, what's to be done about it? I've done my survival course seven times. How much has it changed? It's got easier. It's got less intense. What does that tell you? Piper survivor Steve Ray spent nearly five years on the leadership team of an influential non-profit industry body called Step Change in Safety. It tells you that we're deviating away from this is a scary business to we just need to do the training because it's a certificate that you need to have. And if you go down that route, how do you approach it in your mind? Well, this is compliance. I just need to have a certificate to get offshore. Rather than, this stuff could save my life. He says things are better than they were, but softer training requirements are just one sign that people are changing their attitude towards risk and are shifting away from that baseline of zero tolerance. I think we are in a place now, and I genuinely believe this, or I wouldn't be in the industry, that we have a far more robust protocol for, dare I say, defending us against these Mm. potential risks and we are better at capturing them on the way through so the likelihood of catastrophic failure is reduced or mitigated of those 106 recommendations many, many of them have made a huge difference but ultimately there is an individual decision to be made whether you choose to follow them or not or choose to police them or not It's what the UK's regulatory body, the HSC, has been warning about. It wrote to all offshore production operators in the North Sea in July. It said that the number of gas leaks on rigs in the North Sea had been increasing and some operators had come perilously close to disaster recently. You can have the best process, procedures, protocols in place, but ultimately there's an individual decision to be made whether you follow them or not. And... That's the bit that you can't really legislate for. Leading industry body Oil & Gas UK has acknowledged the regulator's concerns. It says its own data shows continued improvement across a range of trends, but that doesn't mean operators can become complacent. It's quoted as saying, since Piper Alpha, we're all too aware of the personal and long-lasting consequences if things go wrong. Across the other side of the world, in Melbourne, I tracked down RMIT Associate Professor Jan Hayes. She's a former chemical engineer who moved from working at ESSO into risk management in academia. Jan remembers as a young engineer being asked to help formulate the Australian industry's response to the Cullen Report findings, and it was a catalyst for her to move out of industry and into safety research. These days she focuses on the organisational causes of accidents. Jan believes accident prevention ultimately comes down to leadership and operational decision-making. What we've seen in recent years is accidents that are caused by decisions made at the most senior level of organisations, often regarding cutting costs in times when 
the oil price falls or when they're under, you know, in other sectors when they're under other pressures and to increase profitability by reducing expenditure. And so we've seen this trend where you might have um, senior members of organisations, even right up to the board level, where people actually don't understand the potential for disaster. Part of the difficulty is making people understand those potential disasters she talks about aren't going to happen straight away. It's not like, you know, you cut the maintenance budget by 10 or 20%. You're not going to have an accident tomorrow. It might take a decade for that to come to fruition. But there are many accidents where you can draw a direct line between those kinds of organisational priorities and things that play out years later. And it's very easy to point to an operator that made a wrong decision on a particular day or a maintenance person that made an error but to think about the fact that they're working in this environment where that error had such horrendous consequences because um, all all the Swiss cheese slices had all these massive holes that have been developing over decades and decades. Piper survivor Jeff Bolands talks about the Swiss cheese model too, which is when a number of unconnected small errors happen to line up perfectly and result in a much bigger accident. Jan says the only way to help stop that happening is by ensuring people and the organisations they work for exist in a state of what she calls chronic unease, which helps avoid the small errors. I think some people have that chronic unease despite whatever organisation they work in, but you're much more likely to have that uh, as a way of being in an organisation if the senior people acknowledge that. I used to run a lot of workshops, HAZOP studies and other risk-type workshops for people, And some of those things can be um, a bit of a drag in that they're a very detailed way of going through a design and you've got a bunch of people in a room and sometimes it's hard to maintain motivation to actually pay your best attention to stuff. I had this thing that I used to pull out, um, you know, you couldn't do it too often, but I would basically tell people the story of um, what happened to me on West Kingfish What happened was that as a junior chemical engineer, Jan was working with two colleagues on the West Kingfish platform in Bass Strait off Victoria. The three of them were at the spot on the platform where high and low pressure gas pipes meet. The company knew it wasn't particularly safe, so they'd actually been sent in to work out how to fix it. We went offshore that day and we had no idea that this is how it was going to end. It was a noisy part of the rig, way too noisy to talk to her colleagues. But even so, she thought that something didn't quite sound right so she decided to walk around the corner to ask the operator for his opinion. As she did, the pipeline blew. One colleague was badly injured, the other one died. So in a way the punchline would be, there are no neon lights, there are no alarms that go off. This banal thing that we're doing today could prevent someone from dying in five years' time and it deserves our best attention. I asked Jan if events like that instill in a person the sense of chronic unease. She says yes. I don't have any personal experience of this, but I have also heard other people talk about the fact that there are now um, people moving into middle and upper middle management positions where they're making important decisions who were not in the industry at the time of Piper Alpha. They're too young, and so they don't have this chronic unease. They don't have this sense of what can happen, the sense of coming to work one day and hearing that... In our industry, 167 people have died on a facility just like ours.
As a union chief, Jake Malloy gets the juice on most of the issues offshore. Brent Bravo in 2003 was the worst incident he recalls in the North Sea since Piper. Safety representatives on the rig were worried about a number of issues. Shell was the operator, and Jake says the company was listening, but reluctant to intervene. So the unions complained to the UK regulator. NHSC spent three, four months investigating and came back in August 2003 with a lengthy letter saying that things could be improved upon, but essentially there was no imminent risk to anybody working on a shell installation. Um, Three weeks later, there was over six tonnes of gas released into the one of the legs on the installation and two men, one of whom I'd, I did my safety direct training with, were killed, asphyxiated by the gas. But that leg sat right below the accommodation block and you've got six tonnes of highly volatile gas which with an ignition source would probably have collapsed the leg and would have taken the accommodation block into the sea with 155 men in it. Jake is baffled by what happened at Brent Bravo. Why hadn't the operator properly comprehended the danger they were putting rig workers in, given the location of the gas and its volatility? He tells me about another near-miss in 2017, where a non-manned installation had a significant gas leak. The issue was showing up on the control panels of the mother installation. But the instruction was just acknowledge it and move on. So they acknowledged the gas leak for four days, and then they decided they would send... 10 guys the helicopter over to the installation and the helicopter landed and the guys got off and the helicopter took off and the guys headed down to what would be their temporary safe refuge, their accommodation block in the event of an incident to find they couldn't get near it because it was in a cloud of gas as was their means of escape, the lifeboat. Jake says it was only the fact that the wind was blowing in the right direction, that the helicopter didn't explode as it landed on the platform. Because a helicopter's engines would have ignited the gas and everybody on the helicopter would have perished were it not for the fact the wind was blowing in the right direction. He's hearing less stories of near misses now and less complaints, but he says that doesn't actually mean things are rosy on the rigs, especially when HSC data is showing a drop in safety compliance levels. Lots of complaints or near-miss reports is often a sign that there's a really solid respect for making safety a priority on a platform. Jan's research has shown that sharing these kinds of stories about close calls and accidents is absolutely critical for building a culture of safety in organisations, and it can provide a goldmine of information for the company, if it knows how to use it. It's all about what happens with those near misses when they're reported, isn't it? So if people are punished for reporting near misses, then they're going to stop reporting them. But if people see action taken, if, if people see that they're used for, um, you know, trend analysis or that they're used for learning, that they're shared in smart kind of ways, then the level of reporting can be enormous. She did her doctoral research 10 years ago at a nuclear power station that was getting 2,000 near miss reports a month. I mean, it was a big site. There were a few hundred people working there, but they were getting that number of reports because the organisation was treating them like gold as a way of finding out what was going on in the organisation. They weren't treating them as bad news. They were treating them as excellent news and really useful. And people got so into it, they were reporting all kinds of stuff. What's changing now is the way the data is collected. Not so much as numbers and statistics anymore, but as shareable stories. And that's having an impact on how we learn to plan and respond for disasters in the future. If you're looking for the 
rich picture of why did people do what they did and how did it make them feel and, you know, how is this going to help us in the medium term, then actually collecting the information in other ways as stories to share is something that more and more organisations are trying to find, um, mm. uh, you know, ways of doing. These don't necessarily always have to be bad news as well. They can be, um, like a near miss can also be a story of how I recovered. Like this is the weird thing that happened and this is what I did. At the nuclear power station Jan studied, a group of operations people actually went above and beyond to build a story library of things happening to people during their shifts to later test in their safety simulator at the site. They would go off and actually run those scenarios through the simulator and play with them until they understood what was going on and could get a better feel for, okay, you know, this is what happened and this is how we should respond to it next time. The problem with all that is that bosses have to make it clear they welcome having a culture of chronic unease and prove it by welcoming bad news. She says the way to do it is to build an organisational structure that reports upwards from workers to management. That also requires, though, that senior people welcome bad news because if you've got people that only want to hear good news, then they're only going to get good news because no one's going to tell them the problems. It's what Jake means when he says workers are reticent to report concerns, particularly in a downturn. The more worried they are for their jobs, the less likely they are to report. And while people like Steve are optimistic the industry is about to experience a turnaround, with oil prices hitting four-year highs the pressure on costs is still being felt on the rigs. Gina Sims, who founded the Offshore Women's Support Group, saw the impact firsthand through her husband. I certainly know Peter was only 60 when he was 60, 61. He was 62 this year, he was 61. When he retired. But I could see him coming home time after time because it had gone from being two on, two off and then it was two on, three off because they took all their holidays away for them so they gave them this extra week off and then it was three on, three off. Um, So they're tired. Peter worked offshore for 40 years and they've both become progressively more nervous as rigs find ways to tighten their operating costs. I mean, Peter said, I'm getting fed up having to check things. You know, I'm, I'm going on a job or I've been sent to a job and I've sorted it when the last person that sorted it didn't do it right. And that's an accident waiting to, to happen. And I could see, I could see bit by bit, he was getting more stressed about going to work. And in the end, um, he said to me, I think I'm going to retire. And I said, I think, I think that's the right decision for you to do. Because something will, something will happen. People still remember the horrors of Piper, but that chronic unease seems to have really faded from the collective consciousness of the oil and gas industry. Jan reckons complacency can be countered through strong storytelling. She's researching how stories about air crash disasters can be used to teach resources sector people about what can go wrong in their own industries. It's a matter of bringing it back to consciousness. Because, as I said, there's no, there's no neon sign flashing above the important decision, right? It's kind of reminding people that things that they, you know, if they work in this sector, then things that they do every day could accumulate 
to cause a disaster. And it's being mindful of that. I mean, not incredibly hypervigilant or, you, you know, you couldn't stay in the sector, but just to have that in the back of your mind that, that everything you do is important. I also asked everyone I met in Scotland how they would reduce the risks that come from people normalising unsafe practices, starting with Steve. For me, that's when I really thought about my influence was how do you connect with the people that are really at the sharp end? And I made it, and I, I will again, make it my business to make sure they understand their role as individuals. And I talk about, I don't preach, I just talk about individual responsibility, about accountability, about consequences. And I think that's about getting individuals to understand whether it's sitting at a desk or whether it's holding a spanner, you can make a difference. I think Steve's right, but changing the accountability individuals feel is a much bigger challenge than changing protocols or regulations. If you're out on a rig or in any workplace where there's a couple of hundred people working, what is it that makes a difference between an individual worker stopping to fix a problem or report a near miss or speak up about something that worries them versus just walking past and assuming someone else will look after it? Maybe the answer is simply chronic unease. No criminal charges were pursued against Occidental after Piper Alpha because there wasn't enough conclusive evidence about the cause of the accident or who was liable. Too many of the key witnesses were dead. I asked Lord Cullen whether he felt a disconnect between the evidence that he found and the consequences. The inquiry chairman like myself is not there to attribute blame, but, but that doesn't mean you don't express criticism where you think it's required. How does someone separate the role of inquirer and judge and still be a spokesperson for safety without becoming a little bit sceptical about whether we can ever successfully motivate whole workforces to take safety more seriously? That's part of the art of leadership. I mean, it's the more that you look at these events, I talked a moment ago about the triggering event, and then underneath that, perhaps, uh, if you're digging down, you get practices, procedures, and so on. But below all of that, and f- supporting the whole thing, should be the art of leadership, communicating a commitment to safety and things of that sort. There are little passages, I think, in my report which touch on this, but it's terribly... The more I read of uh, accidents, the more I believe in that being absolutely critical. But can the absence of leadership only ever be seen in hindsight? I find it very hard to answer that question. I don't think it would show up, for example, on inspections or on audits that are conducted from outside. I suspect people who work in a particular industrial context become aware they're not getting the leadership they should get. But sadly, this only is exposed if you have the time and the opportunity to dig down and find out what exactly has been going on. Mm. And uh, sadly, that very much depends upon something really bad happening. One thing I would warn about is there is a danger in adopting um, a tick box attitude to safety. That perhaps comes true in the report. So 
if you're going to av- avoid that, then you've got him much more generally concerned with people's attitude towards safety and not simply what is prescribed. Um, but that, it takes a lot of work and it requires determination. I can't help but ask about his own attitude to risk, given everything he's seen. It turns out, even talking about driving his car, Lord Cullen manages to slip in the occasional pearl of wisdom. I think as I get older, I am increasingly cautious, um, overcautious. And I'm thinking about driving, I'm very, very overcautious. Almost to, to um, I was thinking the other day, I was coming out of a dangerous ent- exit. I hate coming out because there's a corner around here. And I was looking to the right, that's okay. Look, I was certainly looking to the left, but something was come up from the other side. Now, you see, that's the danger of being overcautious, of um, preoccupying yourself with something, and you suddenly you're blinding yourself to something that was there to see. So, if we can't ever stop complacency completely, can we mitigate the risk that comes with being preoccupied? Or can organisations plan for the eventuality that process and safety systems will fail? Trauma psychologist and disaster specialist David Alexander says he's seen a lot of companies and organisations present accident and crisis plans they think are spectacular, but which are actually next to useless. So there is an issue for planners to think through what I call think through to destruction. I mean, any plan you have, test your destruction. Get, get guys who, not, not your employees or your juniors, get guys who are going to say, well, I wouldn't do that because you've got a helipad above you. Right? I wouldn't do that because you're right next door to a riser. You, know, I, I, you must think I'm terribly sceptical and cynical, but I don't think I am, actually. I've just seen a lot of it. Some people will come up with a, a very, very good plan, but the, what, they then tend to get their own sort of HSC and other colleagues to test it. That's fine, because they are experts in their own right. But I would get other guys... It might be guys who actually work in that environment. It might be, not to be modest, it might be trauma specialists and say, whoa, whoa, what are you going to do if? What are you going to do if if somebody collapses with a heart attack? Do you leave them? Do you start CPR? And they should really have plan A, plan B, and I would say plan C. The the Japanese uh, produced a wonderful plan for an earthquake. This wonderful plan A, it didn't work, and there was no plan B. It all sounds a bit more gung-ho than I expect most companies would be used to. I know David's comfortable advising on disasters in war zones and hostage negotiators, but I'm not sure if you can draw a correlation between that kind of thinking and the way you'd approach a company's safety plan. It is difficult, believe me. Well, I sometimes go, they do respond, this is not to be pejorative, but they do respond to matters relating to money. And if I quote to them the sums of money which were acquired after Piper or, or other major disasters, and I'll say, charging, um, needing to spend a million and a quarter pounds on an exercise is about a third of what you have to pay one man who lost a leg. Now, I know that's rather crude kind of logic, but I have to try and think the language they actually think in. And, he says, keep planning, test constantly. Because safety standards, if nothing happens, safety standards decline. When you've passed your driving test, or your better signal, maneuver, you know, all that kind of thing, and then after 10 years, it's the old texting away, having a fag, you know. Uh, so we're all culpable. I, I'm, I'm culpable too, except when I'm on duty, as it were. So standards do decline, so therefore you've got to keep testing them. 
Have a false, have a false alarm. Boy, I can tell you that steers you up. See, there's an expression I call overlearning. Don't just do it once. Do it till the rest will be saturated with it. Otherwise, you revert to type in nature. In the offshore industry, at least, those like Steve Ray and Lord Cullen are confident workers are much safer because of what was learned from Piper. You know, we may have an explosion or we may have a gas leak or we may have a structural failure, but it'll be contained, I'd like to think. Jan Hayes was working offshore for Esso on that day in 1988. She says the impact for her was not so much hearing the news but watching the faces of people who'd worked in the industry for years as they heard what happened. Her baseline had already been set two years earlier when she was involved in the accident on the West Kingfisher rig that killed her colleague. That incident and her role implementing some of the Cullen Inquiry recommendations in Australia shaped how she thinks about safety and risk. But as time moves on, disasters and accidents and near misses lose their impact as routines and complacency creep back in and people naturally start to normalise deviance. Jan says huge amounts of money was spent around the world after Piper improving things like blast wall protections and all of the safety equipment. But people forgot that there's a whole lot that can be done to make workforce processes and operations safer. These days, accident investigations do tend to understand a model of accident causation that links more to organisational circumstances and follow, you know, asking why five times. So, you know, these individuals didn't come to work intending to have an accident, so why did they do what they did? Mm. You know, and looking at, in those circumstances behind. What I've learned doing this podcast is that if, or when, tiny deviations away from the baseline of safety all line up, it can take down a 13-storey oil rig, or a space shuttle, or a warehouse, or a suburban home. The challenge is recognising when we've deviated. For the oil and gas sector at least, industry experts say the warning signs are now there. So you've got an industry that's performing worse, or you've got an increase in non-compliance. So in real terms, there should be more safety concerns. But there's been a 70% drop in reporting. That's not good. That's, that should be seen as a very, very worrying trend. Because if workers are not reporting to HSE, even using their, their hotline, and you've got those other elements, then you're getting very, very close. And HSE have said that. We've come very, very close a couple of times. Part of what Steve and Jan and Jeff and Lord Cullen work on now is finding ways to impart on people and organisations that feeling of chronic unease to change the way we think about risk. Because often people assume that they know why someone or why a group of people isn't behaving the way they expect and they think the problem is those people and if only those other people behaved in a different way it would all be fine. But you might find that in ways that you don't intend, they're taking their cue from you. It might be that you're saying things but they don't see the way that you act as being consistent with what you're saying. It makes me think of something I found when I was researching Steve and Piper. He'd written it in a LinkedIn article a few years ago. You're free to choose, but you're not free from the consequences of your choice. This has been Baseline by Safety Culture. For more information on the iAuditor app, 
and how Safety Culture helps businesses identify what's working and what's not in their own operations, visit www.safetyculture.io. Baseline was produced for Safety Culture by Audio Crafts' Jess O'Callaghan and by me, Claire Stewart. Sound designed by Tegan Nichols and original music written and performed by Karen Joyce and Kirsty McCann. Thanks also to Pauline Hailstones, Lord and Lady Cullen, Steve Ray, David Alexander, Jeff Bolands, Gina Sims, Jake Malloy and to Jan Hayes for their gracious assistance. <laughs>